This week's episode is also sponsored by NatureBox. Go to naturebox.com slash weeds for 50% off your first order. The following podcast contains explicit language. I think we're, we're going right. to be fine. I can, I can, I can we're, we're all going to. We're, we're, profes- profes- we're professional podcasters. We're professional. We can all we're jump not, in on each we're other. We're not opiate addicts. <laughs> yeah. Or if we are, we're highly functional ones. <laughs> Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, uh, joined as usual by my colleagues Sarah Cliff and Ezra Klein. Uh, got a great show coming up, uh, but first we need to plug some other stuff that is not the show. Some of you might know already, I recently launched a new awesome newsletter called the Vox Care. It is awesome. Um, I am subscribed yeah. to it. I've really been enjoying it. Um, it has many high-profile subscribers, including Ezra Klein. And it An is influencer. Influencer, a thinkfluencer, I would say. It's <laughs> a, a newsletter for it's a newsletter <laughs> for thinkfluencers. But really it's for people who are following this healthcare debate. We come out every evening and basically kind of wrap up the day in healthcare with kind of one insight on what happened that day that's important. So we we are not gonna be throwing every single link at you. We will just be giving you and usually I'm the lead writer on it. You'll see a few of my colleagues like Ezra. Our politics writer, Andrew Prokop, our health writer, Julia Belouz, giving you kind of a wrap up of these very intensely busy days we're having in health policy. If you would like to sign up, it is very easy. You go to vox.com slash voxcare. Uh, once again, vox.com slash voxcare. Sorry, what was that? It is vox.com slash voxcare. I got it. That That'll time. take you to the sign up page. You can get signed up um, and you will be getting voxcare in your inbox every day. All right. Um, my my turn. Ahead. I'm going to plug something. All right. We have a conference coming up about the first hundred days of policy under Donald Trump. It's going to be in D.C. It's going to be an unconversation format where people come and we're only going to have about 150 people, so folks can actually have discussions with each other. There will not be a bunch of panels. The discussions will be chosen by the people in the room. It'll be whatever the folks attending want to talk about. If that sounds interesting to you, it's going to be a great group, um, but that group is not yet full. You should go to conversations.vox.com to apply. Uh, What's, again, that? What's that address, Ezra? Conversations.vox.com. Thank you for asking. No problem. Uh, we are, again, only having about 150-ish people come to the conference. We want to make sure there's a real space for people to discuss discuss and have an exchange of ideas. We did this once before. It was an amazingly fun and interesting experience. Um, uh, you know, I think for me, for the, for the other folks there, a lot of folks at the first one were Weeds listeners, and I hope that will be true at the second one, too. Uh, last, if, you know, between your your policy conferences and newsletters <laughs> and podcasts, you have a, l- a little time for, for fun in your life, uh, you, you really might want to check out our, our colleague, uh, Todd Vanderwerf. He's Fox.com's uh, critic at large, is a, a brilliant uh, writer and thinker on pop culture. He has a brand new podcast called I Think You're Interesting, where he sits down at, and interviews uh, some of the sort of most fascinating creative people in the um, television and movie industry today. Uh, his newest one is with Desmond Borges, uh, or maybe Borges. I don't, I don't want to venture too much of, of a pronunciation uh, from You're the Worst, uh, which is on FXX. It's, and it's uh, the best show. People love it. Almost as good as I think you're interested. Todd thinks he's interesting. Um, I think their conversation is fascinating. Um, you should check it out. But first, you really should check out boring policy podcasts such as this one. What are we uh, talking about today? We're talking about some great stuff. We got a white paper that's not about Donald Trump, although really it sort of is. Uh, we're going to talk about healthcare stuff because we never talk about healthcare here. <laughs> um, I do think it's time we addressed America's healthcare system on yeah, the show. It's, uh, we're going to talk about the CBO report, which is a very, very big news this yes. week. It big is. policy news. It is. Um, yeah. And but first, you know, we, we should talk about this this tax thing uh, that came out last night. Uh, David K. Johnston, uh, a really. 
fascinating figure in this. Uh, he, he won a Pulitzer Prize for his reporting on America's tax system, uh, but he actually got his start in journalism as the Atlantic City correspondent for the Philadelphia Inquirer. And he wrote a great book about the rise of the gaming industry in Atlantic City. Uh, it's not a book about Donald Trump, but Donald Trump is like a key player in that book. Uh, so he's like right at the intersection of Trump and tax minutia. And he got his hands on the sort of top-line numbers from Donald Trump's 2005 income tax report. And unfortunately, it's like not that fascinating. So I've been coming around to, to a different view of how fascinating this is. So, so it's worth backing out here a bit. Donald Trump, he said he would release his tax returns. He said he would release them during the campaign, was just waiting for an audit to be finished. He did not release them during the campaign. Then he was asked why he didn't release them, and he said, I won. Nobody cares about my tax returns. When when people want those tax returns, what they want are some of the deeper documents there that would show who he owes money to, what his web of business interests looks like, because you're trying to figure out, are there conflicts of interest that are going to be significant within this administration? But I think the tax document we got last night, though the sort of journalism world, because it has become so obsessed by the most salacious things these tax documents could show sort of dismissed it as not that interesting. I, On reflection, I thought there was something powerful there. And, and here's what I thought it was. The, the document showed that Trump made roughly $150 million in 2005. He paid about a 24%, 25% tax rate. Is that right? Yeah. And that tax rate came because of the alternative minimum tax. So if not for the alternative minimum tax, which is a kind of triggered tax when people with a fairly high income have used deductions to get their tax liability too low, Trump would have been paying, I believe it was a less than 4% tax rate. So, okay, fair enough. In paying the AMT, paying a 24, 25% tax rate, he's totally in a normal bound, right? He paid more than Mitt Romney did in his most recent tax returns that we saw. So nothing in that tax return was too damaging to Trump. But But here's what I think was worth paying attention to in it. Donald Trump's consistent argument for himself, for his candidacy, his self-presentation as a political figure has been that he's been a businessman. And for all these years, he's been kind of screwing the system. He's been taking advantage of the fact that you can buy off politicians, taking advantage of the fact that you can buy great accountants, taking advantage of the fact that you can get a sweet deal if you're one of the powerful winners. And then his argument was he's not going to use that on your behalf. He's done being greedy for himself. He's actually this great line where he says, I've been greedy my whole life. I've been so, so greedy, but now I want to be greedy on behalf of America. And it is a great line, and I think it's a great encapsulation of the Donald Trump appeal. He's going to be your bastard in the Oval Office doing this stuff on your behalf and, and getting you the same perks that all these rich guys got, except that when you actually realize what Donald Trump's financial situation is and then you match it up to the tax proposals he's put out, it's pretty clear he's just being greedy on behalf of himself. That, that as, Dylan, as our colleague Dylan Matthews wrote uh, today or last night, I guess it was – if the way Trump's tax plan would work would be that, among other things, it would get rid of the alternative minimum tax. So he would have been paying less than 4 percent um, income tax. And it would have a bunch of other provisions on pass-through entities that also would have reduced Trump's tax liability. So it isn't just that it would have helped rich people in general, but it would have helped somebody in Donald Trump's situation in particular. And 
as much as I think journalism has gotten into the idea that, you know, he must be hiding the tax returns because it's secret Russian oligarchs are controlling him from behind the scenes. And maybe that is true. We don't know without him putting out the tax returns. I actually think there's a very good chance he is hiding the tax returns because it would show this thing over and over and over again, which is that actually, if you look at his situation, he is proposing a lot of policies that would make him a lot richer and would make it look like maybe he's just out to make a buck on the back of the little guy, as opposed to make a buck on behalf of the little guy. Also, where I thought you were going with that whole comment was when you look at the tax returns, one of the kind of interesting things they reveal in that context is he doesn't seem to be getting this like great deal. Like like he sets it up as like, you know, I know how to work the system. Like I'm going to like get this great deal for myself. And it seems like he's paying a tax rate that is pretty similar to other very wealthy people, um, that he hasn't like found some way to finagle, um, you know, out of these taxes through his brilliant business smarts. Um, but one thing I want to, you guys are more of tax experts than I am. Like, I want to understand the alternative minimum tax. Like, what is it? Like, where did it come from? Why does it exist? And like, kind of how does it work for someone like, like Donald Trump? Like, what is it? It is obviously a very, very large part of his taxes, I do not understand it as a policy. Um, and like maybe Matt, like you can walk us through like what what this policy is. Uh, I wish I knew. No, so tr- <laughs> Trump is actually paying to me a surprisingly high AMT rate. Uh, the the basic way AMT is, is supposed to work, right, is that there's various different kinds of deductions you can take. Um, and if you take so many of them that your tax liability gets super duper small – You have to file under this alternate system that has a flatter bracket structure and fewer allowable deductions. I had a year where I had to pay AMT, actually, where I didn't have a job, but I had a book contract and I did some freelance type stuff. And I had a uh, slightly aggressive accountant who was like, that could have been for your book. That could have been for your book. So it was like everything was a write-off. And I was like, this is great. This guy's going to save me a boatload of money. And then we got to the end. He's like, oh, now we got to file the AMT. Um, Which so gets triggered by just the flat amount of deduction or is it relative to your earnings or just – But like, just like how little you're saying you want to pay okay. based on your income. Yeah, so basically just but, to, to, to pull back for one right. second, right? The AMT, they decided as opposed to closing the loopholes in the tax code, they would just have a thing that triggered if you used too many loopholes altogether. That they cared – they didn't really care how many loopholes you took. They cared how much taxes you paid and rather than like go piece by piece and try to like close little deductions and decide what the tax code should do. It's like, you know what? If you make this much money and you're getting under this threshold, we're just going to make you pay this threshold anyway. And in, in Matty Glacius' book author terms, I think the system actually worked as designed, right? So like there's a reason that you can deduct business expenses from your business income, right? It really would not make sense if, if you couldn't do that. At the same time, it gets a little bit ridiculous when you're like, yeah, I did an interview for this on this. You know, it's like anything could be a business expense when you're just like writing some crap for for a while. Um, And at a certain point, you know, it was like the accountant, TurboTax, the IRS is like, no, man, you you have to pay some taxes. Uh, But normally AMT really hits people who are affluent-ish. You know, you're you're getting a good paycheck and you're taking a lot of deductions aggressively. It doesn't actually normally hit like super duper duper rich people all that heavily. Because uh, when you hear things like, oh, Mitt Romney paid a lower effective tax rate than Warren Buffett's secretary, that's not 
him using, quote unquote, a loophole. It's that the tax code by design taxes investment income at a lower rate than labor income. I mean, not to be totally semantic about it, like you can call that a loophole if you want, but it's that's not like a deduction or a special thing you claim. It's just a feature of the tax code that having a billion dollars sitting in the stock market and collecting dividends on it is a tax-preferred kind of activity that's not like what the AMT is about. A a puzzling thing about this Trump tax return, right, is that if you just own tons of shit, as Donald Trump does, you have a lot of income timing ability, right? So like one big thing we know he did in 2005 is he sold a couple buildings in Manhattan. Um, So he probably booked a huge capital gains on those buildings in 2005. And without more years of returns, it's very difficult to understand like how typical this year was, either in terms of his income or the amount of taxes paid or the effective rate that was on it. For like a normal person who has a job, you know, you figure your taxes change a little bit year to year, but not dramatically. But when you're in the business of like striking random licensing deals and buying and selling golf clubs and things like that, uh, you could easily have like zero dollars of income one year, um, like legitimately um, or even a loss uh, and then have hundreds of millions of dollars the next year and just be engaging in like moderately prudent financial planning so you don't run out of money in, in those circumstances. So that to me is what is a little – I don't want to say it's it's like uninteresting to see this tax return. But it's not just that it doesn't give you like the goods on who's paying Donald Trump. It doesn't give you a good financial picture of like what's Donald Trump's tax situation all about. Um, I agree that if there's anyone out there who and the evidence is overwhelming that there are a lot of people out there who believe that Donald Trump is working hard on behalf of the American people and has set himself up with financial conflicts of interest for some totally different non-corrupt reason, and he's not disclosing any of his finances for some totally legitimate 100% above board reason. I mean, good for you, but like there's clearly something up here, right? Like normally – You're not required legally to disclose the taxes, but once candidates started doing it, all candidates started doing it because one good thing about disclosing your income tax returns is then I can't just get up there and be like, yo, you're secretly on the payroll of the Russians because you can be like, no, I'm not, right? But Trump is not immunizing himself against these charges because he doesn't want people to know what his income is like. Which one of the funny sub-themes in in this whole thing over the last 24 hours has been the 2005 returns to some degree, given how fevered the speculation has become about what might be in Trump's taxes. And again, we do not have all of, most of, most pages in even his 2005 return, but just the 1040 stuff that we do have. It it almost got absorbed as good for him because at least he paid some taxes, right? It was proof that he- A lot of taxes. Well, I want to be clear. I pay a higher tax rate than Donald Trump. It's true that other billionaires are better in some years at bringing down their tax rate, but 25% is it's not a high tax rate given where he should be, given what he's making. So I don't want to be too not nice to him. Not absurdly low, though, 100%. I would say. It's higher, it's higher than, as we like said, Romney. Very, yes. I think it was higher yes. than McCain or Obama, one of them. 
Um, so it was higher than Obama. It was higher than Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders, that was it. It was higher Bernie, than Bernie Sanders is not not making that much money, right? But the, that's why for Sanders. Chump. So anyway, but the point is, I agree. He paid some taxes, <laughs> but I, I think it's just funny that the 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 speculation about this had gotten so fevered that just a tax return, a ten forty coming out, and this might have been a particularly good year for Trump, but that was kind of normal. Got people speculating that maybe this was leaked by a pro-Trump player to sort of make liberals look bad. And it was very funny because David K. Johnston got on the Maddow show and the first thing he said was, I got this in my mailbox. Who knows who sent it? Possibly Donald Trump. And his point was that uh, Trump had leaked many things to him before. Uh, and and then people got all, all excited looking at it. Said it was a client side copy, which might mean somebody with access to Trump's tax returns. Maybe it was Donald Trump, but but people thought it made him look good. And I think this is a, a real moving of the goalposts. I think the fact that Trump's tax return, I think, implies two things. One is he's probably not as rich as he wants us to think he is, which is something we know. But this tax return is consistent with that. Uh, and then the second thing is that. He is proposing tax plans. It would be incredibly, incredibly beneficial to him, would leave him paying virtually nothing in taxes. I think that's bad. I think the fact that Donald Trump has managed to really rewrite what is supposed to look good for him here is a sort of impressive example of the Trump-Overton window in action. But I also just want to emphasize that like the top line document that we saw, like this is not the 2005 tax return, right? Like there's some confusion, I think, around they're like, this made him look good. It is 100% possible. It's consistent with everything we know that Donald Trump's 2005 tax returns include a 1099 MISC form from Vladimir Putin that specifies it's for spying services to subvert the American government, right? And that that's just rolled in to the summary. There's that like a, would be a big revelation. Right. But, but I just see like all we saw in the, yes. on the 1040 document is there's like a wage and salary income line and there's some number on it, right? We don't, we did not see Donald Trump's actual tax return would contain some incredible stack of supplementary schedules saying which paths through entities is money coming from, something about what they are, something like that. And we didn't get any of that. I fully believe that Trump could release a complete set of like these summary documents and we could look at them and say like, well, here's how rich he is. Here's how he benefits from the AMT. But you would not learn anything about like what what is up with Donald Trump. From that, you would need to see like the details and you might need to go beyond that. Right. And understand like what shell companies does he have? Like what's really happening? And the tax returns has become a shorthand for like people think they are entitled to know who is paying the president of the United States and how much and for what purpose. Um, But like summary statements of income and tax liability don't contain that information. If you're anything like me, you know, sometimes you want a snack. And if what's around to snack on is junk food, you're going to eat junk food. And it's it's not great. Um, so if you want to sort of live a healthier life, you can start snacking healthier with NatureBox. Uh, they make snacks that actually taste great and they're better for you. They're created with high quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors, flavors or sweeteners. So you can feel okay about snacking. Uh, I, I like some of their dried fruit stuff. They got great apples. They got great pears. Um, they also have some, you know, slightly more indulgent pretzely things 
services in there that, that I also uh, I also go for. And they've recently made their service even better. You can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum purchase required, and you can cancel it at any time. Uh, so it's really simple. You go to naturebox.com, you check out their snack catalog. There's over 100 snacks to choose from. They're always adding new stuff. So you choose what you want. They deliver it right to your door. It's easy. With Naturebox, you'll never get bored. There's new stuff there each month. It's inspired by real customer feedback. And if for some reason something comes, you don't like it, they will replace it for free. That's a good opportunity to try out something new. Um, so right now you'll save even more because Naturebox is offering our fans 50% off your first order if you go to naturebox.com weeds. So you go to naturebox.com weeds. Uh, that way we get credit. You get 50% off your first order. Naturebox.com weeds. But they also, I mean, they were sold. I think this is one way it almost like backfires for the Maddow show because they were sold as like, this is it. Like, this is the thing. We have the tax return. Like, this is the document. And it turns out, like you're saying, Matt, you know, it wasn't the document. It was a small part of the document that reveals a little bit. And in that way, it almost does feel like kind of like a backfire, um, you know, for for the people covering this who want to say, like, look, we have this like big reveal and almost seems to, you know— almost like disincentivize like finding the rest of them because they've sold it as like, look, we had this like big giant scoop. And it felt at least, I think to all of us here, like an under deliver on what was being promised and a distraction from there's a massive amount of policy happening right now, like really big decisions happening and everything kind of ground to a halt yesterday, like around like this tax return moment. And meanwhile, right around the same time, Medicare sends out this letter saying, hey, we're going to consider using work requirements in Medicaid. Like, that's like a huge deal. Um, and I think it is easy. I don't want to say like people can't do multiple things at once. It is very easy to get distracted by the shiny new object um, that are the tax returns versus like the actual policies being made so right now. I'm, I'm a little more positive on the way Rachel Maddow and folks played this. At 735, she sent a tweet saying, hey, we got some Trump tax return stuff. And then it, like an hour later, she sent out a tweet saying, we have his 1040 from 2005. Like it was like a, an hour of uncertainty about what it can be. I think it may be on us as <laughs> as people in the media that everybody stopped their night and freaked out for an hour. Uh, you know, and then they went on the show. I mean, the, the whole sort of life cycle of this thing before we found out whatever was going on was it was pretty short. And, you know, I like to think that if we had something big, we'd do a pretty good job hyping it too. They managed to create an event. Uh, I'm not going to come down on them too hard. But I do agree with what you're saying, Sarah. And and this is one of the things that, that came up a lot in the aftermath of people saying, this is a distraction from the real issue, which is the Congressional Budget Office's score of the American Health Care Act. And you know what? I agree. So let's talk about the Congressional Budget Office's score of the American Great score. Care. Paul Ryan what, says it's better than he expected. What did that score say? Oh, that score was was real bad so, news. Did you see how I did that? That was, that was very smooth, Thank by you. the Cuts way. the deficit. Cuts, yeah. So enhances freedom. Lowers premiums. Lowers premiums. Lowers yeah. premiums. Increases yeah. access to quality, affordable insurance. That All is right. more patient-centered. More patient-centered, yeah. If you were a patient, you're going to be at the center. <laughs> All right. So CBO report came out on Monday, 4 p.m. It was a frenzy when everyone realized it was coming out in the CBO website. Surprisingly held up to all the traffic. Um, It showed that CBO expects – CBO, the kind of nonpartisan budget-keeping agency here in Washington, expects that 24 million people would lose health coverage under the American Health Care Act. That is massive. That is way, way more – 
than really any expert I talked to had expected. There was a report that the Brookings Institute put out last week where they said it's going to be at least 15 million. Seemed overhyped. And everyone said, whoa, that's way too many. It can't possibly be that high. I called it in in Fox Care, our new newsletter, a woe if true report. You could subscribe to that newsletter. You could subscribe. You would have seen my my www.com. (laughs) .vox.care.com. <laughs> All right, now you're, you're not qualified to do www.vox.com slash voxcare. There it is. There it is. Do not go to <laughs> www.com. You will not find anything there. Um, so 24 million people lose coverage, which is just like a massive, massive amount of people. This is more than the entire population of Australia. Like this is a really large group of people. And it's very close to just repealing the Affordable Care Act. Um, CBO analyzed what happens if you just do the straight up repeal through reconciliation bill, that's a coverage loss of $32 million. So it really begs the question, which I know, like, one is we've been grappling with, like, what is the point of this bill? Like, like what are we doing here? Um, so a few other key findings. You have the $24 million coverage loss. Um, $14 million of that is through Medicaid by ending the Medicaid expansion. Um, the rest is through employer loss, individual market loss. Um, can, can I stop you on that yeah. for a second? I was very surprised when I read the the report how much came through employer loss. Mm-hmm. So by the end of the 10-year period, they expect employer coverage to be down by 7 million yeah. people. Do you want to walk through that for a minute? Yeah. And this is a space where I will say, you know, there's been a lot of talk lately about CBO track record. Is it any good? How good are they at forecasting things? Do they know things? Do let's they know things? Out. Let's. let's <laughs> okay. Um, I didn't mean to do that, but here we are. Um, so the theory is that as these marketplaces develop, that you will see companies dropping people onto the marketplace because it's a better deal than providing coverage. You have this theory under Obamacare. And you have this theory under the Republican plan as well. Who gets dropped is very different. It depends on, like, who would be advantaged in this new um, marketplace. In this case, you would see the dropping of young employees who are better off and could qualify for a big tax credit in the in the insurance marketplaces. So you'd almost think of, like, a startup with, like, people making, like, fifty or $60,000 a year in the early 20s and they don't want to pay for health insurance. They might move people onto the market because those people actually do really, really well under the Republican plan. Um, but, you know, we – the CBO thought this would happen under Obamacare and it didn't. It turns out offering coverage at work is pretty sticky, that it is very hard – or it seems to be very hard to end people's benefits, even if they are younger people who don't use as much health care. Um, companies offer health insurance for a reason. They they did it before Obamacare mandated that they offer coverage. They do it because it's a benefit that attracts good employees, and it's also very tax-advantaged. Your dollars, because health benefits at work are not taxed, your dollars go a lot further when you provide them as health insurance versus when you provide them as salary. So. That's kind of what's up with the employer loss. And then you also would see the individual market get much smaller. CBO thinks it would still be stable. You would not have a death spiral, but it would be a smaller market that would have lower premiums at the end. And But the reason it would have lower premiums— there's a catch. There's a catch. Um, it gets lower premiums because health insurance becomes unaffordable for older Americans. So you basically push all the older people out of the market who have very high health care costs— um, there was one really stunning example in the CBO report of what would happen to someone who is 64 and earns $26,000. Um, after their tax credit under Obamacare, they pay $1,700 for their plan. After their tax credit under the Republican plan, they pay $14,000. This is someone who earns $26,000, by the way. I, I want to try to clarify this because yes. I, I feel that the way the CBO presented it is a little bit confusing. Yeah. 
Their definition of premiums going up or down is the average premium that is paid Mm -hmm. by somebody who does pay for health insurance rather than the premium that would be asked of the typical person Mm -hmm. were he to go shopping for health insurance. Um, And you often see in consumer behavior these kind of like weird pricing quirks, right? So like uh, the the average price of beer in the um, consumer price index falls around the 4th of July and other summer long weekends because people buy shitty beer to bring to their friends' barbecues. It's not actually because there's like beer discounts. But Donald Trump has gotten this reputation in the media for lying because he says things all the time that aren't true. Uh, Paul Ryan has a, a much longer, much more dishonest track record of statements, in my opinion, and has been like tweeting relentlessly about how this bill lowers premiums. And like it just it does not lower premiums like in any if you said to somebody, hey, man, are premiums going up or down next year? And I said to you, what's happening is premiums are going up so much that everyone is going to not buy health insurance and just this one kid is going to get a cheap, shitty plan. He wouldn't be like, wow, that's swell. <laughs> premiums are going down, right? Like Paul Ryan, who's just out there. He's lying. Similarly, every time he says there's patient-centered care, the reason he says that is because he's a liar. There's no provision in this legislation that makes care more patient-centered, right? There's nothing that does that. It's just something he made up because what he's doing is he's devastating the finances of poor people because he thinks that poor people have it too easy in America, that America is like a hammock that poor people are just lounging in, and he thinks that rich people are ruinously overtaxed. And the spill, like, it tackles both of those things, and he's just out there just lying like crazy. I usually it. try to defend Paul Ryan's motivations <laughs> for Matt Iglesias' slander. What Ryan has said in this past couple of days, week, it's indefensible. Like, it is, like, flatly indefensible. Yeah, I got nothing on this. Um, it's really, like, I, w- I wish I had something. <laughs> like, I wish I had some, like, generous read of this. It is there's the lower premium side of his comment. Um, so two things, just before we get into maybe the Ryan side of this, the, the other thing that I just want to note, the $24 million is the headline of all this. But the thing that you're hearing from, from Matt and Sarah is that the composition of the market after that $24 million is gone is also different. Health insurance is worth different amounts to different people. If you're older and you're sicker, or even if you're poor to some degree, just given what that tends to mean for your health, it is more important to have health insurance if you're likelier to need it. And one thing that the GOP bill does is in addition to meaning tons of people will not have health insurance anymore, it is particularly disadvantaging to the people who will likely need it most. It is particularly disadvantaging to older folks. It's particularly disadvantaging to poor folks, to sicker folks. The health insurance that is left because they knock out the actuarial minimums, which the actual values are how much of your health care costs need to be covered in a plan by a plan on average. They let that go way down. So the health insurance that people are getting is worthless to them. If you get sick again, that health insurance is not going to do as much for you. So that's also part of this lower premiums thing that the people left 
are younger, healthier, and buying health insurance that covers less. I think you had a good mm-hmm. quote on this from John Gruber that you've used it in stories before. Yeah, there is. It's actually in a story published today. Um, the Lessons of Obamacare. 9,000-word opus on, on the lessons of Obamacare from Y'all should Ezra read and I. It. You should. It's great. I really enjoyed reading it. Or were, I enjoyed reading it. I enjoyed writing it. I enjoyed the whole thing. Um, but this is something Jonathan Gruber from MIT said, you know, when we were doing health reform, it wasn't just, you know, the coverage numbers that, you know, one person covered was equal to another person covered. We cared a lot more about covering a 60-year-old than we did about covering a 20-year-old because we wanted to set up a system where those 60-year-olds who really need the coverage, who have more health care issues, have traditionally been locked out of the market, where, where they are advantaged and we are okay. We care more about getting that person covered than getting a young 20-year-old who will use the coverage less. It wasn't everyone created equal in, in the way they thought about health care. Right. So in addition to the 24 million person coverage loss, it tilts the whole system away from sicker, older people who need help the most, poor, sicker, older people, and towards younger, richer, healthier people who need help the least. And it's in this context that you have Ryan coming out again and again saying that this increases access to affordable quality insurance. Look, I have my secret policy wonk decoder ring. I know when you say increases access, it's meant to be this kind of technical dodge because you can have access to insurance even if you're not buying it because now there's no mandate and maybe the point is to have access, not to actually have it because people should be able to make decisions with their money. I'm fine with that. We can have that conversation. That is not what is happening here. People who cannot afford something, do not have access to it. And you step back from this and you say, well, what what is being achieved here? What are they doing? And the answer is cutting taxes for rich people. Like, that's it. And tanning salons, to be fair. <laughs> and tanning salons. Um, they, it and is medical a, device makers. It is a very large tax cut for rich people that will be paid for by taking health insurance away from poor people. And, it, and it's hard. Like, it's hard to talk about it in these terms. But the best evidence we have says that people will die. Um, we have really good it's um, data now out of Massachusetts and other places around, particularly around Medicaid expansions. And the lower bound estimate, the higher bound estimate says for 20 million people on Medicaid, the estimate ranges from 44,000 to 24,000 deaths if they lost that mm-hmm. coverage. Um, you know, we think the lower bound estimate is more credible. Use that. 24,000 people um, a year might die from losing coverage. Now, do we know if it's exactly that much? No, but you know, these things are real. There is a reason that everybody in Congress gets health insurance, that they all take it up. There's no uninsured people, to my knowledge, who are members of Congress. And for all the talk that maybe it's not all that important, almost all the people saying it's not that important are always fucking covered. And can I add one thing? I don't know. It just makes me sad, the whole thing. That relates to this. One thing you hear a lot, you'll hear a lot from Republicans, is that this plan cuts the deficit by um, $337 billion. And the way it does that is by a massive cut to Medicaid. So it relates to what Ezra was just saying, that CBO estimates – and this, again, was, was I think, larger than I or Dylan Matthews has been covering the Medicaid um, coverage for us had expected. CBO says there would be an $880 billion cut to Medicaid over the next decade, which is just very, very significant. I also I, I wanted to stand up a little for, for the CBO's employer dumping theory, which I know um, – has been a little bit of a pall cast on after the fact that it, it didn't happen in, in the original Obamacare rollout. But if you, if you talk to people who study uh, business cycle dynamics, right, they'll tell you that when the economy is growing, companies usually try really hard to just like not cut anything, right? And like if a company is profitable, they like 
try not to fire anybody, even if their job has become a little bit useless. Uh, they don't they don't cut anybody's pay. You know, they just kind of steady as it goes. And then when there's a downturn, you have a very discontinuous move, right? And so you'll see like when you look at uh, manufacturing dynamics that jobs would usually like stay in the U.S., drifting along year after year after year. Then suddenly bad times hit and like everybody's factories close and move to China, right? And so I think the concern about uh, dumping and, and that kind of thing is not so much that it would like happen in like a drip, 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 like one day after another, so much as that when something bad happened to a company or a sector of the economy or an economy as the whole and, you know, the the suits are like, hey, man, we got to cut some costs somewhere, they'd finally start like kicking the HR department a little bit and they would cough up the fact that like, hey, yeah, actually, there's like all these guys who we could probably throw off our insurance plan and they'd be OK. And you'd see a sort of a, a discontinuity. In it. Can I even add a little bit of texture to that? Um, because – the way it happens in practice, from what I've read, is not so much that people had health insurance one day and then they don't. It's that two things. One is that you subcontract out a function. Right. Right. So previously, the people who drove trucks for you, this is a totally hypothetical example, were employed by your company or the people who stocked warehouses for you were employed by your company and they were covered under the same employee benefits that everybody at your company got to some degree or another. But now you say, you know what? We need to cut costs. We're going to subcontract out warehouse stocking and the subcontractor doesn't have benefits anymore. And so now you have fewer people with employer-based benefits. Or conversely, as people become more price sensitive in a in a recession, they begin choosing a low cost competitor who's maybe never had benefits. Right? Um, I, I don't want to use Walmart here as an example. Walmart does at this point provide benefits, and, and increasingly they're not actually that bad. But conceptually, one thing that happened. One thing that was around the original wars about Walmart was that as it came up as a low-cost competitor, it was undercutting on price a lot of more established um, brick-and-mortar uh, retail stores who had better benefit packages than Walmart did. And as Walmart grew, uh, then you had, on average, worse benefits for folks in the retail And I sector. have actually seen some of this with – not with the exchanges but with the uh, 26 and under provision of Obamacare. Companies that became uh, much more willing to offer – like temp contracts that don't come with benefits to recent college graduates because if people said, oh, does this come with health insurance? They could say, no, but like you can stay on your parents' health insurance plan. And that might have been like a deal breaker for a recent college graduate in a pre-Obamacare era, but became much more sort of sustainable for a lot of people to accept jobs like that. So so I think that might happen. I, I think another interesting thing that the CBO report says that not everybody agrees with, and I don't even think is obviously correct, uh, but that you know Donald Trump at least should consider, is that they believe that the Affordable Care Act exchanges under Obamacare are going to stabilize, right? And that this sort of wild stories we've had, particularly over the past 12 months, where like premiums went up like 25% in some places and insurers abandoned some whole states, that that kind of chaos is going to largely come to an end and that while the marketplaces may never achieve the like utopian dream of like everybody wants to participate in this, that they say that in most areas, a sort of stable risk pool of heavily subsidized individuals is just going to form and it'll it'll be okay, which means that, you know, if you are 
working in the White House and are just like a pure political cynic who wants to get like a win for Donald Trump, you could just like not do this, have Tom Price issue a few orders that he thinks are good ideas. And like it'll probably just look a lot better two years from now than it does today. And then you can say, well, we fixed it and like walk away. Um, and you're hearing, I think, some uh, Christopher Ruddy from Newsmax. And uh, this is weird. S- seemingly uh, the editors of Breitbart.com. Uh, Byron York at the Washington Examiner wrote another version of this piece. Um, some people suggesting to Donald Trump that he has gotten pulled into Paul Ryan's pet project here and that he might just want to kind of walk away from this whole situation and focus on something else. Um, Donald Trump certainly running for president promised to repeal Obamacare, but he also promised to cover everybody, to lower deductibles, protect to, Medicaid to from protect cuts. Medicaid, to let everybody choose your own doctors. Um, this bill is a huge betrayal of those promises. Any conceivable legislation would end up betraying one of the many mutually inconsistent promises that Donald Trump made. Uh, But he certainly did not commit himself to this course of action. And I think some House Republicans will have difficulty saying to some of their donors explaining why it is they did not repeal this law and push through a massive tax cut. But Donald Trump does not have that problem with his core constituents. He can like focus on why Mexico is bad or or something else and just like let Medicaid be Medicaid, let the exchanges stabilize, uh, maybe try to do something about Planned Parenthood or, or whatever, like he, he really doesn't need to get pulled into this. Well, and like what his core constituents want. So, you know, I've been doing I did my reporting trip to Kentucky. I've also been working on these focus groups with Trump voters who are Obamacare enrollees with the research firm Perry Undem. And, you know, one of the things I've been finding is like they don't care as much. They want Obamacare repealed. But when they say that, what they really mean is I want my health insurance to cost me more less money. Right. Like that is what would look like Obamacare repeal to them. You know, when I've asked a lot of them, you know, President Trump said he's going to repeal Obamacare and you have Obamacare insurance. The response I said, well, I get is, well, he's going to replace it with something much better. Like my health insurance is going to cost a lot less under Trump. And I think any changes that move in that direction are kind of what people feel like they have been sold on. And rightly so. Like these are people who followed the election, like who heard these promises of universal coverage. Um, it's been interesting to see that Republicans seem to keep shifting in this direction. Um, just yesterday, the Senate, led by um, Senator John Thune, is now talking about means testing the tax credit so low-income people get more help. Like, what a novel idea. I don't know where one would come up with such such a thought, like maybe pair it with the tax penalty and, and see what <laughs> happens. Um, today, it sounds like um, Axios was reporting that they are thinking about getting rid of their continuous coverage provision because that sounds like super – problematic. I was writing yesterday about a lot of the hurdles. Um, It seems like the repeal plan they've come up with, it's becoming harder and harder to manage the fact it is not one that the people who signed up for Obamacare and the people who signed up for Obamacare and voted Republican, it is not a plan that they are going to be very happy with. I'm going to try to go back for a minute to this question of the not entirely honest way Paul Ryan is selling this and, and and try to hit this from the other side for a minute. I have been trying to think through what would be the honest argument you would make on behalf of this plan, right? Not the political argument. 
in but the real like you think this is a good idea you've really thought about it and 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 here's why it's a good idea just in all in all truth one reason this has been hard to figure out is cuz very few people like this plan i have talked now to a lot of republicans a lot of um republican health policy people and they are not happy with this piece of legislation so it is very hard to find somebody who will really just make the argument for it but I think it would – and I'm, I'm very much open to alteration and I obviously am not – do not buy into this argument. But I wanted to try it because I think it's, it's worth maybe laying bare what conceptually they were trying to do at one point even as they sold it as doing the opposite thing. And I think it really would go something like this, that you believe that America – like first, health insurance isn't worth as much as people think it is. It is just not that important to be covered by comprehensive, generous insurance that uh, a lot of the evidence we have suggests that a dollar spent on insurance is not worth a dollar to the people who get it, that they would prefer to use that dollar elsewhere in many ways. And also that, you know, given how many medical treatments maybe don't do that much good, et cetera, et cetera, that overall that America as a society is overinvested in health insurance. And that's fine for people who have the money to overinvest in health insurance. America's society is probably also overinvested in flat screen televisions. But when it is people being taxed to give other people health insurance, that overinvestment doesn't make sense. So you want to move to catastrophic care. You want to move to less care. Insurance shouldn't be just insulating you from cost. It should be only protecting you from the really big, really catastrophic stuff. So moving to these very, very ungenerous plans is totally fine. Uh, obviously, you'd have to believe that just tax cuts for the rich are an overriding, important, overridingly important thing for the economy and that it's actually better for people, possibly even better for the poor, to be giving rich people tax cuts so they could create economic activity as opposed to poor people health subsidies so they could cover their families with health insurance. Um, you want the age-based tax credits because – Something, something, something about work. It doesn't – the age-based tax credits are not a disincentive to making more money. They're administratively simpler. They um, – this is where I start running aground, frankly. Well, I mean I think part of it is coming at at the point of insurance. This is something you were kind of touching on that I just wanted to frame in a slightly different way. Like some – I think it requires coming at the point of insurance in a very different way where when Democrats made Obamacare, the point of insurance was to get people health care. So people could go get their preventative care that like they could go use their health insurance to get, co- to get actual doctor appointments. And I think when I talk to more conservative um, people about what they would like to do, they would like to provide people with financial protection, that they see the point of health insurance is protecting you from bankruptcy, but it is not to like pay for the preventative care or um, any sort of regular care. Like it, it should just be protecting you from the really, really expensive stuff that we can't possibly expect anyone to afford. I think there are some hard parts to grapple in there that the preventative care, for example, often is what you need to prevent the the more expensive things. But I think a lot of it, a lot of the reason why you see like this partisan split and like no Democrats interested in supporting the Republican plan and vice versa is because there's a kind of fundamental split on like what is the point of this product that we are we are trying to um, to encourage people to enroll in. Well, you know, I also think that like Related to what Sarah is talking about, but there's like contrasting moral visions here, right? Where I think to a lot of people, intuitively speaking, it is um, offensive to have a society in which when there is a person who is in need of medical assistance, he is shaken down for money 
like he's trying to get, you know, some new furniture, right? Um, that is why, for example, in Canada and the UK, right, like health services are free at the point of service, right? It obviously would not like bankrupt British people if going in to get your annual checkup cost $5. And I think you could probably produce a good behavioral economic study showing that charging $5 for a regular doctor's visit did not prevent any medically necessary visits, but did prevent a certain amount of hypochondriac, you know, sort of like misbehavior. But the National Health Service encompasses a viewpoint about the world and like the role of medical professionals in the world as healers and helpers and servants of the public that I think while the medical industry is very, very hostile to the kind of like socialization that exists in the UK, they are very, 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 very um, uh, enamored of the kind of social image that animates those sorts of visions, right? If you talk to doctors about what they do, they don't say, you know, I'm kind of like a small business entrepreneur out here on the hustle. I'm trying to sell people treatments. You know, I always, someone comes in and I try to upgrade them to like the latest and greatest. They, they don't, they don't talk about themselves the way salesmen talk about themselves because doctors think of themselves as healers and salesmen as money-grubbing salesmen, right? Uh, but in America, like medical professionals and, and institutions like are salesmen. You know, you come in, uh, you and your wife are having a baby and the hospital's got a lot of like room upgrades and like special packages and can you prepay for the delivery and you get a discount because uh, I guess it's hard to collect on people afterwards. And you know, I think when you listen to like Bernie Sanders, when you listen to like what real progressives are saying about healthcare, it's that like that system of commercialized medicine is in some fundamental way like wrong, right? And then when you listen to what like real conservatives have to say about a bill like this, they would say, look, you know, Ezra, you're talking about 24,000 lives lost. But if you like cash that out, we're talking about – you know, over $2 million spent per life saved, which is actually a very high, like, estimated cost of human life. We're talking about taxes that the Democrats, you know, opportunistically cast as, like, quote, unquote, on the rich. But actually, these are, you know, uh, investment income taxes that I have an OECD study that shows they're unusually hostile to growth. You have this tax on medical devices. So you're actually impeding the kind of scientific innovation that is like the ultimate driver of cures, which is what really helps people rather than all this other stuff. The more the government gets its arms around things, the more pressure we have to put price controls on uh, pharmaceuticals, which again will impede innovation, will, will deprive cures. Um, so it's just like a fundamental, I think, you know, mismatch between people who uh, y you'll hear from conservatives that have like a lot of great things to say about LASIK, right? That like it isn't covered by insurance. Nobody regards that as like part of the moral economy. They just regard it as like ordinary sort of human service technology product. And they say like it's improved by leaps and bounds. It gets cheaper all the time. And that like we just need to treat health like a standard commodity, right, and not have some, like, hefty tax to give it to everybody for free. And then you have people on the left who are like, no, like, health has never been a standard commodity, and we need to, like, 
decommodify it. And I think it's like it gets just so hard because like people don't like to talk about fundamental principles in politics. They like to stage these like cable news segments where like two people are up there and both of them are saying they want to give everybody amazing health insurance. And like that's just like it it isn't true, you know, and and that's like why there's so much dissembling around this issue that people don't want to like put their cards on the table. I think that's right. And I I think the LASIK stuff is interesting because there's a lot in healthcare. There's some in healthcare that is like LASIK, and there's just a lot that isn't. One thing about LASIK is you don't have to get it. You can walk away. Right. Um, right. Which a lot of the very expensive stuff in healthcare, uh, you know, the healthcare does operate by these 80 20 rules. I think it's something like in Medicare, 5% of patients account for 50% mm-hmm. of costs. And those are not patients doing a lot of optional things, those are patients who are really sick. Uh, and you see this in Medicaid too. You see it in you see it in private health insurance. And and so I agree with what you're saying. And I agree that there is also because I think the moral intuitions of American of of the voters here tend to be operationally fairly progressive on this. They may not want to pay for it, but they do want people to have health insurance. They don't like the idea of people not being able to get treatment. That a lot of policy is snuck in under untrue arguments for it, which I think is what you're seeing right now with Ryan and and with the Republicans. I do think this is going to be an interesting uh, uh, fight, though, because one thing that has happened to this particular policy is it is not achieving many of those conservative goals either. Like those conservatives have views of how to change the healthcare system that include trying to weaken the tax preference for employer-based insurance so that employed people are not getting such generous, expensive plans. They have ideas about portability. Like to make the system more like a LASIK system, you actually need to go quite a bit further. The argument that Ryan and them are making is, one, that this is your first step. And if you don't do it, you're never going to get any further. Two, that there's these kind of mystical second and third prongs in their plan, which is just like the most absurd argument I've heard for anything. That, uh, yes, in the future, you're going to do more things when you have 60 votes in the Senate and and so on. I mean, yes, every party can always say that, but it is not something, as Democrats can tell you, that you can rely on. A lot of things Democrats would like to do if they'd gotten 60 votes in the Senate after they had passed Obamacare, but it didn't happen. So the idea that you can have an integral part of your system that relies on that uh, is is really just not a good argument. But, you know, I I, I think you're right. I think that there is a, a fundamental um, – difference in moral calculus here that that is just it's just hard to overcome should talk about a white paper let's talk about a white we paper, a white yeah. paper in a while you gotta get back to it. it's an nber paper of course because um, that that's our favorite um so this is a paper um from david otter at mit also david dorn and gordon hansen um called when work disappears manufacturing decline and the falling marriage market value of men and it's um, kind of an interesting argument. This is something that's come up in a few other papers that I always find a really interesting area of research. They basically look at what happens when you have less manufacturing jobs, when, when you have kind of more imports, less American manufacturing, um, companies shut down. And the thing they show is that you generally, when you see a decline in manufacturing, you also see a decline in marriage. And a lot of this seems to have to do with what is going on with um, men in those areas. They are um, working less. They're engaging in more risky behaviors, drug use, alcohol use. And um, women are making the decision like that these are not marriage material um, men. And so what you see, what, what Otter and his, and his co-authors find is that 
in these areas where you have manufacturing decline, you have decreased employment among men, more risk-taking behaviors, less marriage, less births overall, but a rise in out-of-wedlock births. Um, So you're seeing, in other words, less people are getting pregnant, but when they are having babies, they're happening increasingly out-of-wedlock. And this kind of speaks to like a larger body of research that I've always found quite interesting about kind of how we think about marriage as a good and kind of when marriage is appropriate. And one of the things we've seen, and this study shows it, some work from Andrew Turlin at Johns Hopkins also shows it, there seems to be a pretty pervasive view as of marriage as the thing you do when you're stable and you're ready to have a family and like you feel like you kind of like have hit those marks of adulthood. And what you're seeing now when stable employment is often harder to come by and it's harder to find, you're not seeing people say, well, we're going to get married because marriage is the thing you do before kids. They're going to say, well, we'll have kids and marriage will be the thing we do once we're eventually stable. And maybe they don't make it to that stable point or maybe they they do. But there's still this idea of marriage is the thing that happens when you've made it to stability and before. Before, like even 30 years ago, it seemed to be connected to the thing you do before having kids. That seems to be disconnecting more in a lot of sociology research, and it seems to be related to to employment and stability and like having these jobs that, that feel like the jobs you have when you're ready to make that decision. One thing I think is interesting here, so I read a paper, this a couple of years ago now, so I'm not going to remember the authors, unfortunately, but it's about this, these changes in marriage. And they had this great model where they said... Marriage has moved from a cornerstone model to a capstone model. Mm-hmm. That it used to be that I think that, that's the Andrew Turlin paper I was talking about. Actually, oh, it's the same paper. It might be the same one. Oh, interesting. That sounds very familiar. Okay, so maybe maybe I'm just getting you a different part of the paper. But th- this idea that yeah, like it used to be something you built your life on, right? You did it before everything else worked out. You got like people got married; they were 19, right? They didn't, you know, they didn't know where things were going. Now it's something you do when your life has been worked out. But the problem there is that if if it's a capstone and you don't reach that kind of moment of celebration, that moment of, hey, I achieved enough of my goals to feel good, like putting the capstone down, then it doesn't happen at all. And if you believe, and I think the research on this is pretty good, that marriage is a better structure under which to achieve those things, right? Two earner households are, are more stable. Just people with those kinds of social supports are more stable. They have support to, to achieve things. Then it, it creates a, a secondary difficulty to getting there. So you both have the external difficulties of you know, the, the actual economic environment you're in, these areas that have more China shock to them, whatever it might be. Uh, then you have the internal difficulties of a sort of family structure that is less conducive to surviving and thriving in, in, in context of that kind of adversity. And then you get these sort of what, what I think this paper is showing is a lot of social breakdown. I think it's worth delving into some of the the kind of specifics here uh, because you know they're they're looking at the at the intersection of of two subjects that we've researched a, a fair amount. Well, one interesting thing they mention here in a kind of literature review type way is that you see this same decline in marriage when women's labor market opportunities improve mm-hmm. as you see when men's labor market opportunities decline. And I think that's important. I think there's a certain tendency that has grown up in recent years to try to attribute all of the decline in marriage incidents to uh, working class men's labor market struggles. Uh, but the evidence suggests that some of it over the past generation or two is due to women's uh, greatly improved economic prospects on, on their own, right? So if you want to just be like a really old school right winger, you can say that like, you know, this shows we were right all along and like letting women get jobs uh, <laughs> is bad. Um, I think 
men having difficulty getting jobs, like one would have said was a bad thing, like regardless of the empirical findings in this paper, the negative consequences to people losing their jobs and not being able to find other good ones is obvious enough that like the the details of it are interesting. What you do see both in this paper and in, in Otto Dorn Hansen's previous China Shock papers is that the impact on men in heavily import-affected uh, communities in the early 21st century was a lot worse than we would have thought because the behavioral response was much more dysfunctional than I think somebody would have drawn up on their chart, right? I think that you would have said if it had been like free trade, it makes most people better off, but there's winners and there's losers. Some people will lose good jobs and will have to get other jobs that may not pay as well or they may not like as much or they might have to move when they don't really want to. And then you'd be like, okay, you know, we can talk about, you know, can we compensate people or should we do the deals or should we not? But it was portrayed as a, I don't want to say like a low stakes, but as a like, one of these things, some people gain, some people lose. Almost all policy has some of that dynamic. Uh, but, you know, what they're finding here is that, like, men in these communities have much higher death rates. They're much more likely to um, become alcoholics, to become opiate addicts, uh, to, to have drug overdoses. Um, that basically, you know, and then the, this marriage impact, because particularly we find that um, – uh, being raised in an unmarried household uh, leads to a lot of bad outcomes, specifically for for male children in terms of their educational attainment, right? You're going to have like a multi-generational propagation of this problem that like communities need to obtain like more education and more skills in the modern economy. But this China trade process, rather than accelerating the gaining of those skills, is actually making it less likely mm -hmm. that people are going to equip themselves to compete. And if you could do it all over again with this foreknowledge, right, you would want to think much more seriously. Okay, we want to go from a world in which we have all these Americans working in auto shop auto part factories to a world in which Americans have a higher level of skills and are getting jobs that are on average like higher value added than these. And then you would have to have somebody like write down like how are we going to make that happen, right? Like through what actual steps is that going to occur? What instead was done was people just sort of assumed that it would work out because the the correct way to respond to all the factories in your state closing down would in fact be to like try to pick up a class at community college um, or like double down on the idea of getting married and participating in child rearing. But that is not at all how people responded. And now we're like further from making the transition to the economy of tomorrow than than we were rather than closer, right? I mean, the, the decision to sort of like allow offshoring of relatively labor-intensive manufacturing was a deliberate policy choice, right? With the idea being that it would like propel the economy forward into the future. And what you're seeing here is that like it has done the opposite of that and really like taken, at least in specific areas, like a huge step back. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of obstacles to, like, making those good decisions that you're talking about, like taking up the class or, like, participating in child rearing. But 
a lot of the areas like they're looking at in this particular paper are areas where the college might not be very close or you might not have a car. Or you might not have like enough money for gas for the car that it seems much easier to fall into the decision of, you know, making of unemployment, of, you know, doing other things that make you, as Otter and as co-authors would say, like a less marriage material person. Um, so I think there's a lot of obstacles there that that make those things quite challenging. You know, so this is all making me think about a piece uh, my friend and, and, and Matt's friend as well, Ryan Avent, who's at The Economist, has written for, for The Economist now has a magazine, I think, called 1843. The piece is called, uh, I'm sorry, I don't want to get the name wrong, Escape from Escape to Another World. And Ryan is writing about, there's real sort of staggering data now about particularly young men spending tremendous quantities of time playing video games. And, and there's a Line in the piece that I, I've just been reading it this morning and I was really struck by, he wrote that in 2015, remarkably, 22% of young men who are in their 20s and don't have a college education, these are, again, young men in their 20s, no college education. In 2015, 22% of this group reported that they had not worked at all in the prior 12 months. And again, in 2015, that was a, a year the unemployment rate nationwide fell to 5%. The American economy added 2.7 million new jobs. In, in comparison, back in 2000, less than 10% of such men were in similar circumstances. So in 2015, you had 22% of men in their 20s without a college education who had not worked in 12 months. And in 2000, that was under 10%. And he goes on to, to make an argument that one thing might, that might be happening around what Matt is saying is that in addition to it being hard to do that counter training, right, to be developing the skills and the social networks and the social supports – to become more competitive in the labor force, we're also seeing – this is the argument Avent makes – we are also seeing a rise of fairly appealing low-cost forms of leisure, really, really engrossing leisure. They just make that a less attractive um, uh, alternative. And I don't want to go into some kind of lazy like, oh, like these like lazy men are just playing video games. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that. Um, but what I am saying is that – when you get into a, a bad space, when this kind of behavior becomes normalized and when, you know, the sort of climb back up seems really daunting, but there are pretty easy and fulfilling uh, and interesting ways to maybe spend your time alternatively, sometimes people just do that. And one reason it might be, you know, getting harder and harder to, to pull people back from the ledge here is that the ledge, you know, in a very, very rich society with an incredible array of particularly consumer electronics, but much more grimly opioids – at least when people are on it, there there are more there's more appeal to it. Yeah, yeah, but uh, I mean, also one thing that there's been some some new criticisms of this author research that have come out that I don't I don't really buy, and and I think Otter's re reply to them is, is good, but they make the point that the context for this China shock was a period of overall economic weakness. Right. And so what they are finding is a localized severe harm that played out in a backdrop of like a not great overall natural national situation. And looking forward, it does seem to me that like one of the most important lessons here is the importance, like the social importance of trying to maintain a fairly consistently full employment economy, which until 2000 we had and since 2000 we have not had. Um, later today, the Federal Reserve is supposed to do a, a meeting. Everybody thinks they're going to raise interest rates a, a quarter percentage point. Um, they have their 
arguments for that. The unemployment rate is low now. Interest rates are still pretty low. But what it all comes down to is that like they do not see the current situation as a crisis or as a continuation of the crisis that existed several years ago. They don't want to take any risks on the inflation side or the financial stability side to see what would happen if we had like a superheated labor market in which companies suddenly like really had to see like, hey, are there some more able-bodied people around here who we could get to work? Like, oh, I read this interesting Economist article about all these guys playing video games. Like maybe we need ads in the video games about how they need to come right. work. At a, you know, like the the – Capitalist system has like a certain genius for like finding ways to mobilize people to do things, but you have to create the incentive to do it. And it doesn't seem right now like we are putting a high priority on trying to make the private sector want to do the difficult work of like finding people who may not be located optimally or have been like doing the best thing for the past year or whatever and like get them in. Um, I, I'm like a couple years older than you guys. So you may have not ever had the experience of working uh, stupid jobs in the in the late 90s boom. Oh, I but, worked a stupid okay. job. I worked at a health club handing out towels. That's yeah. boring. They, but they just like, they would hire anyone to do anything. I know, I was in then. high school. Right. And they hired me to do that. It was just, it, it was a time when like, to get like a good job, I'm sure was difficult. But to get like, quote unquote, a job was like, comically easy because people were just like really short of work, right? And like we could try to create that circumstance again. I think some of it also has to do with um, one of the challenges is like with the setting up like norms of, you know, oh, this is like what people around me are doing. Like this is how it works. And it goes one way or the other when you see, you know, other people around you like this is the behavior that they are doing. I remember, I forget where exactly I read this, but there was a really interesting study about uh, when people get more free time and sometimes like it doesn't make them much happier because it turns out the free time you value the most is the free time the people around you also have. So if you're free on like like we like our weekends because our friends tend to be free on the weekends and we can do things. If you're free on like a random Tuesday, that's not as much fun because you're just kind of hanging out and everyone else is doing things around you. But if everyone else is free on that Tuesday, well, then that's like actually kind of fun because you can hang out with people and you see like that's what people around you end up doing. So it seems like one of the big challenges is when you have this like norm shift towards like everyone's free on Tuesday and we all hang out and do different things. um, It can be hard to say like, hey, wouldn't you rather be at a job right now versus like enjoying this free time that you have with the people around you and feels like something to change. You actually need to do like it's hard to do on a person by person level and almost has to happen at like a community social network level. That's right. So turn the podcast off. Go. Go do some work. But before you turn the podcast off, you might want to rate us on iTunes, share us with your friends. I'm also going to put my own plug for my interview podcast. I uh, This week I interviewed Dennis McDonough, who is Barack Obama's chief of staff. This is his first interview since leaving the White House with uh, President Obama in January. We talk a lot about how to run a White House in very specific terms, which I found really interesting. And I think Weedsers will enjoy as well. Uh, the Weeds is a Vox.com Panoply production. Thank you to our producer, Afim Shapiro. Thank you to all of you for tuning in. Thank you to my colleagues, Matt and Sarah. And we'll be back next week. Bye.